0: to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Good. Look with me in Acts chapter 18. We read these verses together earlier, but I want to just start off by reading in verse 12 again. Acts 18. We're looking at the passage uh, 12 through 13. Verse 12 says when Gallio was proconsul of the Ki, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying this man has, is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But Since it's a matter, a question about words and names, your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. We've been studying throughout the book of Acts this progression in the second missionary journey of Paul and Silas now who is with him, Luke who is with him, Timothy who is with him, and now uh, Aquila and Priscilla are traveling with him, although they're, they're going to stay put here. And a, as we do this, one of the interesting things, and I, I, I'll just give you the little behind the scenes for what I'm looking for so often when I read God's word, is there's so many people out in this world who reject the scripture. They reject it not only as uh, authoritative for their life, but they reject it as just myth and fairy tale. So I'm always looking for where are those little clues that the, either the New Testament or the Old Testament gives us that anchors this in history and reality. And this is one of those. That the fact that we're told that Gallio is the proconsul is a timestamp on this passage as well. We talked about this when Paul arrived at the beginning, that this had to happen because of it said that the emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. We know that happened in AD 49. And we're told that the passage we read last week, Paul stays for about a year and a half. So now we're told that he's before Gallio. Gallio served from AD 51 to 8052. 52. That, that's from sources outside of the scripture. In other words, at two points in this story, the New Testament writer Luke, who's traveling with Paul, has given us a timestamp. Now think about this. If you're going to write a book in the lifetime of the people who are still alive, we're reading Acts from a long time separate. Luke wrote this in the lifetime that many of these people were still alive. He's saying it's verifiable. It happened in this place. It happened in this year. Uh, Go ask. Go check it out. This is one more of those you can verify the authenticity of Scripture. There's another one in here that I absolutely loved. Uh, Paul, who is this outspoken preacher of the Gospel. Paul, this outspoken sort of renegade amongst the apostles, is brought before the tribunal. Standing before Galileo, the sort of ambiguous, we'll talk about this, the ambiguous charges are laid against him, and Paul, who is ready in season and out of season to give a defense for the faith that he confesses, is about to open his mouth. You know what that tells me? That tells me eyewitness. That tells me Luke is standing there. As the charges are laid, here's what, if Luke was not an eyewitness, what you would read. And they they brought the charges against him, but Paul never spoke. Galileo said this, except Luke saw something, and it's the same thing you and I have seen in conversation and rooms before. You ever been in one of those situations where two people go to speak at the same time? It's a little bit awkward, uncomfortable. It gets even worse when two people go to pray at the same time. You ever been in those meetings? And you're like, I'm never praying out loud again. I don't know. All I got out was, dear Lord, oh, no, John's praying. Right? Uh, And this awkward sort of moment in the conversation, which you only get if you're an eyewitness to the event. So again, this places Luke in this room. I love that because, again, what we're being reminded is this is authentic eyewitness testimony. This is a real story. These are real people. These are real events. So we're not going to, that first part's pretty self-explanatory, but look at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers to set sail for Syria, and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila, we we were introduced to uh, this couple that had come to Corinth when he was there, and Paul is working with them, Paul has been discipling them, and as he leaves, they are traveling with him now. They're a married couple. Paul has been spiritually pouring into them. But I want you to notice something in your Bible here. It's interesting that most of the time that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the New Testament, it's her name first. So most of the time when... uh, we're talking about a couple even today. Well, often, unless we're related to them, if we're related to the woman, we may mention her name first. Most of the time, we mention the guy's name. That surely happened in this time. The, the subjugation of women was pretty common back in this time. Uh, the men were sort of the ultimate ruler within their household and family and community. It is an anomaly that her name is mentioned first. In fact, it gets mentioned again and again first. And almost every commentator agrees it's probably because of her influence, that how well-known she was in the church based on her gifts and talents. That she was probably more gifted than him. She was probably more helpful than him. She was definitely more well-known than him because her name is put first. Let me give you a few examples of this. Uh, we see it here, Acts 18, verse 18. Uh, and I'll just give you the, the little... Gist of the verse for each one of these. Uh, And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. We see it in Acts 18.26, where it says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, uh, talking about Apollos. But when Priscilla and Aquila, so at this point Paul has left them, it's just uh, Priscilla and Aquila who were there, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Uh, It's in Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Greet Prisca, which is a shorthand name for Priscilla. Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.19, greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. It is significant that there's only two times in the New Testament that his name comes first. Now, I bailed him out last week a little bit by uh, letting you know that he actually does have a man's name, and it means eagle in Latin. It is, it, it's all, always struck me weird that Never mind. Anyway, so uh, he actually does have a rather manly name. We just don't speak Latin, and so it doesn't come out too well. But there's two times, and the first one is when Paul meets them. When Paul is introduced to them and begins uh, work and ministry and discipling with them, when I'm choosing, as Paul the Apostle, to pour into this couple, I'm going to pour into Aquila and Priscilla. It's really significant. And the second time is later on in his ministry. In fact, it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. And this is when it's in reference to a church that is meeting in their house, a church that they are responsible for and overseeing. This is the only other time that the husband's name gets mentioned first. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord and I want us to just think about this for just a moment if Paul writes this intentionally four out of the six times they're mentioned uh, her name is at the beginning it's probably telling us something but I think it tells us something even more at the two where his name are first when it came to I'm gonna pour the gospel into this family I'm going to disciple this family he is careful to say God has chosen to place the man at the head of this household. I will pour into him, even though his wife is going to outshine him. Almost every commentator agrees that her gifts and abilities outshined her husband. And yet there's, there's this responsibility. Was it because he's better than her? Because he's smarter than her? Absolutely not, because all the other references seem to kind of point the other direction. Are you following with me? And the other time is when he talks specifically about the church for which they are responsible for. Again, her talents, her gifts, her abilities seem to push beyond what Aquila's did, and yet Paul anchors the responsibility for that church primarily in him before her. This doesn't necessarily sit well in a day that's very egalitarian. We want equality on all levels. And I would say God has absolutely 100% made us equal before him, but God did not make Aquila and Priscilla equal. Now, all those of you who are sitting there going, oh my gosh, like this is just male domination. No, the answer to God did not make them equal was he made Priscilla slightly better than her husband, slightly more influential, slightly more well-known, maybe more well-gifted, and yet here's what they chose to do And that is image, what Paul would describe in Ephesians chapter 5 as the relationship between Christ and his church. And Paul says this is what marriage is actually all about. It is a living picture, a living action document before the world for the world to read of what it looks like for Christ to love his church, for the husband to love his wife, and for the wife, the church, to surrender to her Savior or for the wife to submit to her husband. This is not because of gifts or talents or abilities. It's because we want to image Jesus well in this earth. Man, you guys are quiet. With all of her gifts and abilities, Paul seems to clearly place the responsibility for the church on his shoulders. Not because of anything, this is important, not because of anything greater in him or lesser in her, but in, to intentionally image the complementarity of Christ and his church. That Christ and his church actually complement each other. We are never called to take the position of Christ for the church. Even as a pastor, our pastors will never be called to take the position of headship in this church. Amen? I'm going to make you do it. Even as pastors, we will never be called to take the position of headship in this church. Amen? Amen, because it belongs to Jesus. You with me? So it's not about our gifts and talents or abilities being put on display. In this church, we want to surrender to Jesus. You can't see it, but on this podium is a saying that was in Scotland about 400 years ago uh, at the end of the Reformation, as they called to their pastors and they would stamp it on their pulpits that said, sir, we would see Jesus. Come check it out. That's why week after week, we don't say, sir, we would see Matt. Oh man, make it a good one. Right? We would see John. We would see Harold. We would see someone else. No, we want to see Jesus as the head of this church. If you have your bulletins, this is one of the the fill-in-the-blanks for you. Our marriages and ministries have the opportunity to reflect the image of Christ's love for His church and the church's loving submission to Jesus. In our marriages, in our ministries, so how you interact with your husband or your wife, how you interact in ministry with the church and with the world around you, we have an opportunity to reflect the image of Christ's love for his church and the church's loving submission to Jesus, not based on talents, gifts, and abilities. Man, I want to just say that again and again because these things have actually been used in the past to kind of squash women down. Well, the ladies should stay silent on this one. We, you know, let the men sort this out. They're the, they're the weaker sex. Guys, I don't know about you, but if I didn't have a godly wife who was talking to me, encouraging me, Occasionally getting on my case. I would not be near where I am in my walk with God or my ministry. I thank God for a godly woman who I think most of the time is smarter than I am. Husbands, this would be, yeah, I just saw one husband, like a little pat like that, right? This has nothing to do with that. This is all about imaging Jesus in his church, in the church. So, so pull it out of marriage and into the church. In the church, we all work together using different gifts and talents to exalt the name of Jesus in the world. Isn't that what we do? God has made us different. We complement each other. We fit together. It's why it's actually important that you're not just here, but you're here and involved and working and serving. What, what is it that God has gifted you to do in the church? We need that. Because maybe somebody else doesn't have it, and you compliment where we are lacking. But it is for the exaltation of the name of Jesus. So let me give you a little practical example. We just had the worship team up here a second ago. And I just want you to imagine one young Aidan Gingrich singing over here. If at some point during the worship set, he decides, this is my moment to shine. Right? He's already got like the ripped jeans thing going on and the the van shoes, you know, maybe he just like spikes his hair up, pulls out an electric guitar and just starts blazing some solo away. He starts drowning everything else out, all all the singers, all the musicians, and everyone stops and he's just glorying it. Like they turn on the fan. You remember that from the 80s and like the hair's like blowing. If it was all about putting my gifts and talents on display, we would say you're just putting on a show. This is all about your ego being satisfied. Uh, Look what I can do. Man, church, be a little careful on what you say yes and amen to, because now pull that back into our marriages. Look what I can do. Demanding our place, demanding our rights, demanding our, what society has said, Equal status, which absolutely God has made men and women equal, but he's made us to complement each other. It just like the church, just like the worship team. In our marriages, we work together using different gifts and talents to exalt the name of Jesus in the world. Your purpose in your marriage is to exalt the name of Jesus in this world. That's a decent one to write down. My purpose in my marriage is to exalt the name of Jesus in this world. By the way, that's the same mission. So spoiler alert, your marriage is not about your gifts and talents being put on display. It's about making Jesus known to the world. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm I'm talking about marriage, but it's an image. What I'm really talking about is Christ and his church. And so a a husband who maybe feels uncomfortable in leadership roles in his household because his wife is a strong leader. She has some of those things very naturally, will hopefully be pushed and encouraged by a loving wife to step up and do something to image Jesus and his church. A wife who is a strong leader will take that leadership to propel her husband forward in submission so that jesus might be lifted up not so that she can show what an awesome wife she is are you guys tracking with me here see we get confused talking about it in this modern world because it's all about demanding your rights and everyone noticing who you are and your gifts and ability by the way as soon as we've done that my marriage is all about exalting me and not jesus amen by the way ladies If your marriage is about exalting Jesus and not you, you will have no problem lifting up your husband to image Christ and his church. And guys, if your marriage is all about Jesus, you will have no problem laying down your life to serve your wife and your family. If not, if it's all about you, if it's all about your selfishness and who you are being put on display, we won't do that. We won't image him well. Look again at verse 18, second half of it. At Sincrei, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now, I just want to say I would love to just jump into this. Uh, I would love to speculate. I would love to then take all those speculations and apply it to our life and and all kinds of good thoughts associated with that. Uh, I'm just going to make a couple comments on this. Besides cutting or not cutting Uh, because vows in the New Testament and Old Testament varied a little bit on that. Of your hair, such a vow mandated strict purity, refraining from strong drink. One would have undergone such a vow either in seeking God's blessing or after something to express thankfulness to God. So I'm going to be doing something difficult. I want to seek the blessing of God. Or, God, I can't believe you brought us through that. I want to express my thanksgiving in this time. It was a time period of making this vow before God. The truth is, in the New Testament, none of these details are clear. So I could give you wild speculations on both sides and then applications for you on how you should therefore live your lives, but the Bible isn't clear, so I'm not going to speculate either. But I'll say this. right? So this one, again, is in your notes. When we all have spiritual ups and downs in this life, and we do. Times that go good, times that go bad. Times where we have something huge laying in front of us and we're crying out for God's blessing. Times where God has brought us through something and we are grateful for his provision, his faithfulness. No matter where it is that we are, God's design is to cause us to trust him, depend on him, and surrender to him anyone ever said this before? God, why am I going through this? Why is this happening? Why does this have to happen to me? So that I would trust him, depend on him, and therefore surrender to him. Now, that's important because that's super easy to come to on a Sunday morning. And it's really difficult. As I was Walking out of the service last week, uh, I got a text message from a friend of mine, Brandon Hooley on the Ship Police Department. We've been praying for his mom, Deanna, uh, who was looking at a really long battle with cancer. Uh, Cancer is just an ugly, ugly thing. And it was like 1235 when I looked at my phone that said, I have no idea what happened but she's on life support. The doctors say she's not coming out of it. We're going to pull the plug. It's one thing to sit in these seats with everything going good and the sun shining and say, God, everything you bring in my life, especially the difficult things, are to cause me to trust you, depend on you, and therefore surrender my life to you. If you don't settle that now at 1230 when you have to pull your mom off life support, it won't be there for you. You have to know that God is good. You have to know that God is sovereign and he is working all things together for good. For those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Look at verse 19. They came to Ephesus. And he left them there, that's Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he, that's Paul, set sail from Ephesus. I want to just think with us for just a minute about this phrase, the Lord wills. It used to be a very, very common phrase, uh, especially uh, maybe those of you who are a little bit older can remember uh, seeing different things, maybe even in print. Uh, We're going to do this and that. And afterwards, it would have the initials DV. I don't know if anybody remembers that. The, The Latin for the Lord wills is Deo Valente. It used to be a really common thing, even in American newspapers, that they would write, here's what we're going to do. And at the end of it, just these little initials DV. If the Lord wills. If God wills, we will do this or that. The founder of Microsoft, Bill Gates, Who's a man who's amassed billions of dollars in personal wealth? Was once asked, What's the one thing that you would wish for in this life? You know what he said? Time. He had things he wanted to do, things he wanted to accomplish, but there was not enough time. The reality is, our only truly limited, non renewable resource that we have is time. Everything else is renewable. Time is fleeting, and once it's gone, you cannot get it back, which has led many who reject God, reject uh, his sovereignty, his will for our lives, to, instead of saying Deo Valente, to use a different phrase, which is que sera sera, which means, anybody know? Whatever will be, will be. So, if life's events aren't controlled by some sovereign God and they can't be controlled by my own power, my own choices, then chance must determine everything. In fact, chance, therefore, determines my destiny. So, whatever will be, will be. I, I'm just sort of adrift on the winds of chance. Christians, we should look and sound very different from that. We are called in Scripture. Psalm chapter 37, verse 5. If you're taking notes, jot it down. Psalm 37, 5. It says, Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. It bothers us. When we're living a life trying to do the right thing and we see someone who has rejected God, rejected all of morality, rejected all ethics, and they seem to be prospering, and God says, trust your way to me and stop worrying about that guy. Stop worrying about the guy who unjustly, unrighteously seems to be succeeding because there will come a day where God makes all things right. Here's the reality. When when his plans work and my plans don't, I get frustrated. Anybody else? When I I have a plan for what I want to see happen, and then it doesn't seem to be happening, I get frustrated. What does frustrated look like for you? Irritable? A little snippy? Your words sort of take an edge to them? I'm not talking about anybody in this room, right? Nobody. Because you guys are Christians. None of you, none of you, I just saw a wife point at her husband. I will not say Jen's name. That, was, that would be wrong. <laughs> Here's the reality. This is our human tendency. In our fallen human nature, when things don't go our way, do you know how many times in this past week at the quilt show I could see the beginnings of snippy? Think with me here. What's the quilt show for? Please don't say quilts, right? <laughs> Again, blankets. Yes, Remington. Remington, like, was here and served, I don't know, most days during the week. And we had this running joke. If you really want to get to the quilt ladies, go into this room and go, man, these are nice blankets. <laughs> Woo, they will lose their mind. Uh, yeah, not about quilts at all. It is about The mission of Jesus Christ being accomplished on this earth, right? Raising money for that, that the gospel would go to all the nations. And all these people who came and brought quilts and bought quilts were just unwittingly part of that mission of God. That was why we were here. And you know what happened? When our plans didn't go right, we got snippy. Because we're selfish. This one's in your bulletin. Most of our frustration with life's unexpected twists and turns is due to our belief that it is our plans instead of God's that will stand. It is my plan that should stand. It is my way that should stand. And when it doesn't go according to my plans, when it doesn't go my way, well, then I get irritated because I don't know if you know it, but my way was pretty good. It was well thought out. This is how things should have gone, but we forget that God has never promised that your plans will stand. He's promised that his plans will stand. So next time your husband or your wife gets a little irritated and snippy when things aren't going right, just ask him, whose plans are standing right now? Is it yours or God's? Say it from a distance, right? I mean, like don't be in swinging range when you say that. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, Many are the plans of a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You can have a million plans. In fact, you should. The, the wrong response to this would be, Well, it's God's plans that are standing, not mine, and so therefore I'm not going to work, I'm not going to plan, I'm not going to do anything. I would say you've missed the point entirely. Because we're made in His image, we are to work and plan and attempt these things in humble submission. Remember that imaging of Christ in His church? All of us, male and female, when our plans fall short, should image humble submission before our Savior. Therefore, we must learn to order our lives by Deo Valente, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Look at verse 22. When he landed in Caesarea, which, by the way, is the, the port that they would use if they were going back home to Israel, to near Jerusalem, he went up and greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and that other place that John mentioned, strengthening all the disciples. I want to I just think here as we're, we're kind of moving towards the end of this. Uh, Notice that throughout Acts, Paul is on mission, constantly on mission. He didn't stay in Ephesus because he had this compelling mission to go. He was going to be going back towards Jerusalem. He was going to be going back towards Antioch. But even on mission, he has this overriding desire to preach the gospel. So before he leaves in Ephesus, he goes to the synagogue and he preaches one more time. And they beg him to stay. Normally, Paul stays long enough that they beg him to leave. Here, they're, He's only been there a day, and they're like, please stay. Talk to us more about this. And he's like, no, I've, I've got to go. But he was compelled to preach the gospel. That's what, in verse 13, got him dragged before the tribunal. It's what, in verse 19, compelled him to go to the Jewish synagogue in Ephesus. And verse 22 says that when he landed in Caesarea, he went up. When, when he goes up, that, that is a traditional Jewish way of talking, of going to Jerusalem. The city on a hill. The city was built into these mountains. And so all throughout even Old Testament times, it would talk about someone going up. To go up meant to go to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem isn't in this text, but by saying go up, he's actually telling us that. It's as if someone said today, I'm going to go to the Big Apple. They're going to the Big Apple. Where are they going? New York City, right? Same same principle. Greets the church and then goes to Antioch. Spending time with their... Pouring into the churches, strengthening the disciples. Let let me just say this to you. As busy as our lives are, as important as the mission is, people are the mission. That's in your bulletin if you want to write that one down. People are the mission. And it's easy to forget that. One of my favorite examples of this is a Princeton psychological study they did back in 1973 where they recruited 67 students from Princeton Theological Seminary, which I think may call it into question just at the beginning, but that's my idea of Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, So they're they're studying religious studies, and they said, we want you to to come. They didn't tell them they're in a, a psychological experiment. They said, we want you to come and give a lecture at such and such a time on the parable of the Good Samaritan. They actually pointed it to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then while they're going from building A to building B, they would encounter an actor. An actor who was part of the experiment, who's either laying on the ground or laying in a doorway, sort of doubled over, eyes closed, coughing, acting like they're in severe pain. And these young seminary students would have to pass by them and see what would happen. Here was their guess. They guessed that the pressure of time would be the determining factor on whether or not they stopped to help so they amped it up a little bit they made uh a high hurry a middle hurry and a low hurry so the high hurry ones they they told them we want you to go give this speech on the good samaritan and then right before they leave they would say oh wait you're late they expected you a few minutes ago you better get moving high hurry uh to a second group they said the assistant is ready for you please go over there right now sort of a a moderate hurry you're not late but it right now and then the low hurry it'll be a few minutes before they're ready you may want to head on over there here's what they found only 40 percent of the seminary students who were on their way to give a lecture on the good Samaritan stopped to help the person on the ground in fact several of them stepped over his body on the ground what made the determining factor we have a slide for this those with low hurry 63 percent of them stopped if they weren't in a hurry, they stopped. Those with medium hurry, uh, the assistance ready for you now, go on over. Under half of them, 45%, stopped. And if they were told that they were late, 10% stopped to help. Church, I want you to, to latch on to this, the crucial factor being not care and compassion, but how much of a hurry they were in. And My question for us is how much of a hurry are we in in this life? How important, see, this comes back to plans. Whose plans will stand, ours or God's? There's a chance if you meet that person huddled up on the side of the road, God just changed your plans for this day. Whose plans stand in your life? How about you? How do you do with that? Real quickly, look back at verse 15 with me here. Verse 15, he's standing before Gallio, the proconsul, The charges have been brought, they're they're kind of ambiguous, you can't tell. Is it Jewish law? Is it Roman law? Whose law has he broken? Verse 15 says, But since this is a matter and a question of words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge in these things. Most people outside of the church, most non-Christians today, think this is basically what Christians do. We just argue over words and names and laws and it's a complete waste of time. Many Christians today have the same opinion. We're we're just making a big deal out of nothing. A, A lot of times this gets attached to someone saying something like, and this is why I hate denominations. All they do is they argue about words and names. That has been true for sure at some point. But I want us to think about something. True Christianity, what makes us distinct from the world and other religion, comes down to what we believe about words and names. Or what we fail to believe about words and names. Words. Words of the gospel. The story of God's plan to save his people and bring glory to himself. Words of God's law. The outline for God's plan for how we should live in a world that God has made. Words of theology. Theology is just a fancy word for the study and understanding of God. The revealing of the God who made all things. These words make us distinct. These words are who we are. That's why when a church compromises what they believe, when a church rejects the authority of Scripture and tries to blend in with a secular world or tries to blend in with other world religions by saying something insane like we have the same God, they have ceased to be a church. Because the church is defined by words and names. The names they were arguing about is the same name that we are arguing about today in much of the world, and that is the name of Jesus. The name of Messiah or Savior being attached to that. That is the name that divided these early Christians. It divides Christians today. It is Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Paul's entire ministry of planting churches by preaching and declaring and arguing that Jesus was the Messiah. That was his plan for planting churches. Arguing with these Jewish people who had all of the religion in place but had missed that Jesus was the Messiah, that the Messiah would come and suffer, that he died as a substitute, not just for the Jewish people, but for people from every nation who would believe in him. Today, that name still divides people. Most people in our world do not have a problem with a small G God or a higher power. They have no problem at all with an inclusive modern church that never talks about sin. They have no problem with pastors who only talk about unlimited potential for good inside every one of us if we would only just believe in ourselves. In fact, a secular, God-hating world loves those type of churches and loves those type of pastors. But mention Jesus. Mention that you actually believe that the Word of God is right when it says in John 14, 6, Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. No well-intentioned Muslim, no well-intentioned Buddhist or Hindu, no well-intentioned secular person who's a good person at heart. No one comes to the Father except except through me, and watch how quickly they turn against you. Just watch. Because they've already rejected Him. The world will turn on you when you mention Jesus, not because they despise you, but because they despise Him even those who profess the name of Jesus, but reject these words. This is why we we do talk about words, we do talk about names. They may say, yes, I believe in the name of Jesus, but they reject the words, the ideas, the theology, the understanding that we are saved by faith alone in Him, in Christ, not by our works of righteousness. This is the same thing Paul was arguing with the Jews. In saying Jesus was the Messiah, he's saying all of your rituals... All of your law-keeping does not have the power to save. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Those churches that say they believe in Jesus but reject salvation by faith alone rightly stand apart, separate from evangelical gospel-centered church. Oh, church, let us be the ones who stand on the gospel, who stand on our faith in Christ i got three quotes for you here and we're done. John Murray said, The doctrine of justification by faith alone is the fundamental issue of how sinful man can be at peace with a holy God. This is why it's at the heart of the essence of the gospel. If you lose this, if you lose this understanding of words and names of who Jesus is, how salvation is accomplished, you've actually lost salvation. Martin Luther, 500 years before that, said justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 1800s in London, said any church which puts in the place of justification by faith in Christ another method of salvation is a harlot church. Words and names are important. That's why Paul was not only willing to preach them, he was willing to die for them. Worship team, if you guys would come on up. So, I would just put the question to you. Where do you stand on some of these words and names? Jesus, salvation, salvation, through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Maybe you've been one of those people who's been content to come to church for a lot of years, but hasn't really, maybe you've given your heart, but you've never given your head. You've never really thought into who God is. And I would challenge you today, it's important that you think about these words and names that the first century church was willing to die for, that churches all through the centuries have been willing to die for, and that today there are missionaries willing to give their life for the sake of this gospel. Maybe you even call yourself a Christian but have thought most of these things that we're talking about don't matter. In fact, all you have to do is separate yourself from the church. We've had so many people in it. It just rips my heart out to see this. People who have been people that we've known and loved and gone to church with and then they get separated from the church and start saying things like, well, all you have to really do is be a good person. And start justifying sin. Salvation through some other means. Do you really need to just believe in Jesus? Aren't there many paths to God? To you, I, I would say this. The Bible hasn't called us to be Christians. Just in case you were sleeping, I'll repeat that. The Bible has not called us to be Christians. The Bible, Christians is a name that was put on the church, The Bible calls us to be followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. Followers and disciples of His Word and members one of another. What does it look like to be a Christian? A follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. Someone who is obedient to His Word. Someone who is in fellowship. Members one of another with those in the body of Christ. And I would say, does that describe you? Does that describe your walk with God? And if it doesn't, then by God's grace we would say God come explain to us a better way even as Aquila and Priscilla did with Apollos come and explain the gospel a bit more clearly so our faith can be put on Jesus Christ and him alone it's one of the reasons why we take communion every single week it reminds us that our salvation is not anchored in our gathering There are some denominations who taking communion is actually part of our earning merit before God that we would make it to heaven I pray, by God's grace, that ours is the exact opposite. That every week as we come to take communion, we are reminded that we come as sinners broken before the cross, and it is the body of Jesus, it is the blood of Jesus that has purchased us and redeemed us and bought us back for Him, that we stand united as a body of Christ through Christ alone.